So we are in the book of Proverbs in our series right now, an expositional working through the book of Proverbs, God's divine wisdom. We're calling it wisdom from above because that's precisely what it is. So we're in chapter 10 right now, and we're doing today verses 1 through 2. Chapter 10, book of Proverbs, verses 1 through 2. Hear now the word of the living and the true God. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Thus far as the reading of God's holy and inspired word, let's pray together as God's people. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the knowledge and understanding that you give to us as your image bearers, as your children. Thank you for your wisdom teaching us, God, how to live skillfully with your truth. We pray, God, today for the message that you would teach by your Spirit, that you'd convict us, that you'd renew our minds, that you'd heal the broken, that you'd lift us up, that you'd give us hope and joy in the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that you'd get the teacher out of the way, that your people would forget me, Remember you and your word and what you've taught by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> I have been, as your brother and as a pastor, I've been trying as best as I can to try to communicate the difference between knowledge in Scripture and wisdom. Wisdom is the, is the application of knowledge, the application of God's truth. I have a deep conviction that we need to pursue not only understanding the Bible, theological truths, being able to articulate important doctrinal truths in Scripture and defend them, but we also need to learn wisdom. How do we actually apply these truths? Because there's a difference between having divine wisdom, understanding it, being able to apply it, and being a knowledgeable fool. Much that we can see around us in terms of failure in either the failure of the Christian church to influence the world to be salt and light or failure in our personal relationships, whether that's our marriages or our relationship with our children or with one another within a church. Much of the failures come from a lack of knowledge and especially wisdom. We don't know and we don't know how to apply what I've been trying to challenge all of us in is that we need to pursue as the people of God, not only the knowledge that we get from Scripture, divine revelation, explaining who God is, who am I, what's the truth about this world, how do I know God? We don't need to just pursue those things, but we have to pursue actually becoming sharp in the application of divine wisdom. And that's why I'm so especially grateful to God for allowing us to have not only His Word, but to be able to have space within the life of our community to actually do an exposition on the book of Proverbs because this is the book of divine wisdom. How do you live as a Christian? How do you live? How do you, how do you manage conflict in your family, in your relationship to your parents, or manage conflict within the church? How do you deal with injustice in the public square, in the courts? All of that is right here in the book of wisdom. We need to pursue divine wisdom versus being knowledgeable fools, people that know a lot of stuff, but we can't actually apply wisdom. We don't know how to live like God, to be like Christ. And that's the key issue. Jesus is wisdom incarnate, God incarnate, but he is not just uh, God incarnate in terms of giving people truth and truth claims abstractions. You see in the life of Jesus, the wisdom of God not just in the spectacular way that he can answer people and that he knows their thoughts from afar, but how Jesus actually can navigate in God's creation what it's like to be divinely wise because he is wisdom incarnate. If we're going to be like Christ, if we're going to be like Christ, if we're being conformed to Christ's image, this is key, and probably a revelation to many zealous young reformed people, which is a good thing, but if we're going to be like Christ, we can't be just like Christ in his knowledge, but also in his skill in applying God's truth. He is wisdom incarnate. If we're going to be conformed to Christ's image, then we must be like him. We'd show no partiality. We are love with one another. And that application comes out in our lives. See, oftentimes we can articulate 
and defend the Trinity. We can articulate and defend justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We know the sola, sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria. We can do all that, articulate it. We can articulate the authority of Scripture. We can even defend those truths out there in the public square. However, oftentimes we're proud. We gossip. We slander. We cause division. We entertain one-sided stories. We just did a message on that in Proverbs 18. We come to conclusions before we've fully heard a matter. We show partiality. We get seduced by sexually immoral men and women when God gives us divine wisdom as, as to how to avoid the harlot, the whore, the sexually immoral, how to stay away from her door, how to not go into that pit where there is death. We are oftentimes, let's admit it, in all Christian communities, professing Christian communities, but especially in a Reformed community, you'll find this often. We're knowledgeable fools. We know a lot but we don't actually have the skill of divine wisdom in our daily life and in our personal relationships. That's what this study's about. That's what it's about. It's not about just getting through a book. It's about allowing these things to actually set into our lives, our minds, our souls, our hearts, and actually start bearing fruit of divine wisdom. You see, the difference between knowledge, facts, abstractions, and Wisdom is much like, I remember, um, and some of you guys are amazing musicians, so I, I might blow this in terms of how to describe it, but I, when I was young, I, I learned the saxophone. Don't ask me why I picked the, picked the saxophone. I decided I had to do a musical instrument, so I'm going to do the saxophone. And I ended up stopping doing the saxophone because the reed would get really funky and stinky. And so I ended up like picking it up, and it smelled so bad. It just and Now when I see saxophones... All I smell is that stinky reed. And so that's why I quit. And so I'm a quitter. I'm sorry. Um, but I remember when I was very young and I started doing the saxophone and doing band class and everything else, I remember the first thing that you have to learn, and you guys can attest to this as musicians, many of you, you have to learn musical theory. You have to learn like, okay, this is the pace. I remember the teacher up there, okay, ready everyone, and one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And you're learning that pace to follow the conductor and you're learning the pace and how they want this to flow and the pace and all those things. And then you're learning, okay, this is this musical note. And so I remember the books even, right? You have a musical instrument, but you've also got a book. As a matter of fact, downstairs in my cave, it's where they have music class here at the church or at this school. So all across the wall are the musical notes and describing musical theory and the purpose of music to the glory of God. And it's explaining even terms of different beats you want to follow and why you're doing it this way. And here's the thing. You can actually get maybe a degree in musical theory and you know all the things about notes and how that's supposed to sound and all the rest. And you've got it down to a science in your minds. But there is a vast difference between understanding the musical theory and this is the pacing and here's what this note means and here's where it belongs on the sheet and all the rest. You can know all those things and actually not be a skillful musician, right? You cannot be a skillful musician. You can just know all the right stuff. You can teach a class on it, but you are not actually good at performing the artistry of music. I remember when Candy and I were very young and uh, very newly married, we had a, a couple that we were very close to, and um, uh, that my friend Aaron, his brother was a very famous pianist. He was absolutely astonishing. And I would actually encourage you, uh, if you get a chance after this message, go check it out on YouTube. Uh, his name was Dax Johnson, D-A-X Johnson, Dax Johnson. And Dax was absolutely astonishing in how he was so skillful with the piano. He could make some of the most beautiful music I have ever heard in my life, and I mean that sincerely. We used, before he got like uber famous, we used to go and like he'd go to a local mall and he had, he had been sort of, you know, paid to sit there and to play, and you could listen to him play for hours, and it was amazing, his skill and his ability to just play all the notes, and he invented even a new pedal 
for the piano and just gives it a new sound. And it's, it's really amazing. Some of his music is incredible. He had the ability to play that piano in uh, honestly, clearly, divinely gifted ability. God gave you that gift. That's something special. And here's the thing about Dax. He never took a music class. He never was taught the piano. All the guy did is he loved the piano and he loved the sound that it makes. And he just learned on his own to play that thing. And he started playing concerts globally. And people would pay all kinds of money to go sit for hours to listen to Dax play the piano because he was so skillful. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. He was able to actually articulate and he was able to move your soul and your mind with this music and he never took a class on music theory. He didn't do what I did as a young boy and learn all the notes and how it's supposed to sound. He learned this, by the way, this is, this is when they were still like AOL online, like America, uh, uh, right, American online. This is when it was like, you were still like dial up, like ding, ding, ding. So it's not like he had like the online training, like kids today, you guys, you got it made. You can learn anything almost for free. Just, I want to learn that instrument and go to YouTube and some dude's teaching you for free, right? You'll learn it all at home and all the rest. This is before that. This is just him as a young boy sitting in front of a piano and just creating music with this gift and this skill. And that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. The ability to actually carry this out in the world skillfully. And here's the challenge. In this section, you'll notice, have you already noticed some of you guys have been in this book longer than I have been, right? And I'm not, I'm not making fun of your age. I'm saying you've poured over this book for a long time. You've been in the book of Proverbs a lot. You might have already been wondering before we got to chapter 10, I wonder how Pastor Jeff's going to deal with this. And what I mean by that is you go from chapter 1 through chapter 10, and much of it is thematic. In other words, you'll have a big section, sometimes the whole chapter and it's sort of aimed at one lane and one area of thought, one theme, and it's just drilling down, and it's the entire chapter. And so much of one through chapter nine was already thematic, and it's a little easier to manage because you're having these big sections, and it's one thought. And you may have already known that when you get to chapter 10, everything changes. Everything changes in chapter 10 in the book of Proverbs. It's, it's the bane of every expositor's existence. And you get to chapter 10. Why? Because unlike chapters 1 through 9, very thematic, now we get to mixed. These are now short maxims. Now, it's identified as the Proverbs of Solomon. We're not going to do a big thing here and a big study over the authorship of this book. Is it really, ultimately, it doesn't really matter in terms of how much of this was written by Solomon by his own hand, how much of it was written by his assistants, all those things scholars love to talk about but it doesn't get us to the real meat of the discussion. I want to imply God's wisdom here. And so it, it's addressed as the Proverbs of Solomon. And now we have what are short, sort of scattered maxims in a way. And Bonson, when he addresses this, he addresses this like this. He says, you really need to think of the book of Proverbs in this way but especially after chapter 10, you need to think of the Proverbs verse by verse like your vitamins, right? Your vitamins, what do you do? You take them into yourself, they go into your system, and it takes time for it to work through your system. You need to give these maxims, you need to give these tidbits of divine wisdom in Proverbs, you need to give them time to work in you. Think of it, Bonson says, like a hard candy, right? You don't pop it into your mouth and then just swallow it all at once. You put it into your mouth and you savor it over a long period of time. You suck that hard candy until it disappears. And that's how you have to take the book of Proverbs in these bursts like this. You have to take it like that. Let it get into you and let it do its work. Let it challenge you. Think about the different ways you have to apply this in your daily life. Meditate on it. If, you, if we want our minds to be renewed, that's how this truth has to get into us. And so we're on to verse 1. Here we go. Proverbs 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise man makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So you have now this... 
display of what has already been the theme. You know this. We've been in the book of Proverbs for some time. You know that the wisdom comes like a father to a son. That relationship between the father and the son or the mother to the child or the parents to the child is up front and center. And the text says, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Some translations don't use the word sorrow. Some translations use the word heaviness. It's heaviness to her heart. So a a foolish son is a heaviness to his mother, and a wise son is what makes a father glad. This is, listen, how God made the world. We have to take off the shackles of the culture that's round about us and how we've just diminished the glory of the family, the foundation and unity of the family. We act like you can live a life well, that you can be a wise son, that you can be, have a strong life at the very beginning without a father or a mother. In so many ways, just consider it. You have act- an actual culture in some ways where people will actually uh, prize the idea of like, that's my baby's mama, that's my baby's daddy. You have a culture that teaches that and like, prizes and accepts it. Like, we have a broken family, it's no big deal. He's over there, I'm over here. You have now a culture where we even allow homosexual couples to adopt children in broken families or in families that are just totally uh, harmful to the child where we're saying to a child, you could grow up with a mother and a mother or a father and a father and you won't be lacking in anything. And of course, that's not the way that God made the world and that's the culture we live in. We live in a culture that's telling us it's perfectly fine to live your life without a father or without a mother. Now, it's a fallen world, and I want to be very sensitive to this. Listen, at the start, it's a fallen world. And, and what ought to be the case oftentimes isn't the case. Sometimes we come from broken families. Sometimes we come from harmful parents where we have a sinful father, an abusive father, or a sinful mother and an abusive mother. I, I understand that. But this is talking about principles. The way that God made the world is he made the world in a certain way. Jesus says it. What? A man shall leave his father and his mother. He shall cling to his wife. They'll become one flesh. What happens? What, how did God make the world? From the very beginning of creation, which, by the way, kind of demolishes the Darwinian model and any idea of theistic evolution, from the beginning he made them male and female. From the very start, it was male and female. And from the beginning, God's purpose was you leave your father and mother, one family unit, to be joined to your wife, creating another new world and new family from which children come. That's the way God made the world. If you want order, peace, harmony, goodness, happiness, joy, it's going to start there at the family. Whether you like it or not, that's where it starts. And this text is talking about wisdom in terms of the relationship between the father, the mother, and the child in terms of imparting wisdom, in giving love and care, raising up the child. But in this case, it's actually talking about the consequences of godly wisdom or foolishness directed towards the family. So children, today I have you in my sights. (laughs) A wise son makes a glad father. Now notice what it didn't say. It didn't say the superstar athlete makes the glad father. Did you get that? It's not to say those aren't good things. I'm not diminishing the glory of God's gifting in those areas. But that's not the pinnacle. A wealthy son makes a glad father. Nope. Nope, because that actually is not the definition of success, divine success in God's eyes. What does it say in terms of making a father glad and father happy? It says a wise son makes the father glad. And it says that a foolish son is sorrow, is heaviness to the heart of his mother. Because that's how God made the world. How does God start in terms of giving order to the world? He creates the family and children come from the family. And there's authority there and there's love and care and nurturing. And as you move through God's redemptive story, what do you have? You have God giving the Ten Commandments. And what, here's your test for today, What is the first commandment with promise? What is it? The very first commandment in the 10, in the Decalogue, in the 10 commandments, the first commandment with a promise, according to Ephesians chapter 6, 
is honor your father and your mother. It's that commandment that God gives, honor your father and your mother. Heap, the word honor there is to heap glory upon. Let that set. Honor your father and your mother. Yes, entails obey. Yes. But it's honor, heap glory upon children, your father and your mother. And God says, when you live that way, when you actually function in the world in a way that God made the world, there's blessing and there's promise, there's goodness and life and happiness and peace. And he doesn't say it about lying. He didn't say it about adultery. He says to children, honor your father and your mother. And then he follows it with the blessings because that's how God made the world. Keep glory upon your mother and your father. That's God's order. In Ephesians chapter 6, go there. In Ephesians chapter 6. It's a new Bible. My pages are still sticking together. I love it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. The text says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So there's the instruction to children. This is fundamental. It's foundational to how God made the world. This is the very foundation of harmony the family and the relationships that we have in the family. We are not to be disconnected. Oftentimes we can celebrate in today's culture. People will just sort of accept that yeah, my parents are, you know, total nerds or my parents are, they don't know what's going on. And sort of, you know, you, you have, um, it, it, even, uh, uh, it even taught in media and film, whenever it gives you the impression of the dad of the family, it gives you the impression of the dad of the family that he's either a deadbeat or he's sort of uh, the absentee father or he's just a total doofus and he's dumb, right? And you'll have uh, even children's shows um, expressing the relationship within, between the children and the parents as not good and it's normalized as that's just the way the world is. That's just the way the world is. Parents don't know what they're talking about. Parents are sort of out of their element. They don't understand us, and, and they don't really know. They don't really understand. That's what's taught in media. You're not really taught in media and in film and in TV shows the glory of the family and the harmony of the family and the goodness of mother and father pouring into the children, loving the children, nurturing the children, and highlighting the glory of that relationship. But it's not so with divine wisdom. Divine wisdom says, this is the very foundation of harmony. If you child, if you kids, if you want goodness, happiness, joy, peace, life, then you follow your mother and your father and you follow God's word and his wisdom because a wise son makes a glad father and a foolish son is heaviness to his mother. It's the foundation of harmony. And listen to this, check this out. This, we, you know this. You, I'm not teaching you anything here you don't know, but you know that Scripture has this theme over and over and over. These principles and this truth around the family and children and parents honoring them, God's wisdom, foolish children. It's everywhere, but I think it's interesting. I, I really, as I was preparing this, I, it, it dawned on me that one of the ways that the Apostle Paul expresses when he explains the gospel systematically in Romans one of the ways that he expresses a broken creation is this way. Go there to Romans 1. Romans 1. When he wants to express to the world just how broken the world is, how fallen and separated from God that it is, he does so in some ways that most of us would say, yeah, that's obvious. That was actually a really amazing, insightful thing you did there. You pointed to something that shows creation actually turned on its head. But he does, he does more. In Romans 1, you guys all know, he explains that everybody knows God. They suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. They don't want to know God. They don't want him in their knowledge. And so what's the first thing Paul identifies as proof, positive, that the world is in rebellion to their creator? What's the first thing he, he shows? What is it, everybody? What? Feel free to say it. He says they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And then what does he try to display in terms of creation turned on its head? What's the first thing he points out as broken? 
David, say it loud. Sexuality. And how does he do it with human sexuality? How does he show that the world is actually broken and is turning creation on its head? What's he do? What's he, what's he point to in terms of sexuality? What is it? Degrade, yeah, degraded passions, and he points specifically to homosexual practice. It's the creation turned on its head. All right, God made the world to order and function a certain way, male and female, and then he goes, and these people are so broken, they are idolatrous, they don't want the true God, they don't want to know him, they don't want to think about him, and so what do they do is they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for something that looks like him, they switch God for idols, and then he goes what? He says, and then they actually have men with men, and women with women. So Paul's saying, it's broken. Here's the obvious display. It's so broken. It's men with men and women with women. Can you believe it? That's not the way the, the world even works. The world will never grow that way. Life doesn't work that way in God's world. He made this whole thing. And can you believe people actually switch God even in their sexuality? But notice this. He goes on with a list. And I think what he says is interesting. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, he says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. So what's interesting is that oftentimes, um, rightly, this is not wrong, it's rightly, rightly, we will point to our culture today and call them to repentance and faith in Jesus, come to Christ for life, and oftentimes we find ourselves in a discussion where we're trying to love our neighbors that are engaged in, say, homosexuality. And we're trying to point them to what Scripture says about why that's broken and how we love them and want to turn to Christ and know God and be forgiven. And we're very good at pointing out, hey, this is broken. Homosexuality is broken. God defines it. Here's what he says. But you know what we oftentimes don't point to is that he actually names some of our favorite sins alongside homosexuality, right? Gossip, slander, haughtiness. And you know what else he says in terms of, you want to know that the world is broken? Look at this disobedient to parents. That's how you know the world's broken. That's fundamental. You want to show the world flipped on its head? Creation gone awry? Creation flipped on its head? Gone the wrong direction? Here's proof positive. It's not just homosexuality. It's actual disobedience to parents. That's a highlight sin. Did you notice that, uh, and this is big, did you notice that disobedience to parents is right near haters of God? Wow. Disobedient to parents in the same list of rebuke of sins as haters of God. Same category. Fallen creation, disobedient to parents, haters of God, those belong together. That's what Scripture says. It's the foundation of harmony, the family, the parents, to the children. And what's the consequence? Today, we don't respect this. We don't honor God. We don't want his wisdom and the order that he's created, the harmony he's created with parents to children, infusing and teaching knowledge, understanding, and wisdom into our children. So we have a, create, we have a world today, a culture today around us where there's no common sense. I mean, this is one of the things you notice the most when you look out there and you see, like, say, a video of engaging people on college campuses. You see, like, 22-year-old technically adults, but kids, right? And you say, you walk away from videos like that, and you're like, my goodness, it's like they have absolutely no common sense. No, no ability to like live skillfully in the world. Like, what's, what's broken there? And, and if you want to find, find why there's bad fruit, you got to go to the root, right? Where does it start? Of course, it's a sinful heart, but it's going to start in terms of like the way God made the world is godly, righteous parents, wisdom being poured into the children. Why is there no common sense? How come they have no idea how to live skillfully? How come they're confused about gender? How come they're confused morally today? How come they're confused sexually today? How come they have no skill? Listen to how it comes. 
Go to Proverbs 4. Listen to how it comes. Now, this is just a repetition. So 10 is a short maxim that expresses in a new way what you've already heard over and over from across this pulpit in Proverbs. So 10.1 has already been said, but now 10.1 is a punch from what was said in an entire chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. Watch how it comes. Here it is again. Ready? Hear, O sons of father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she'll guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she'll exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life, here it is, may be many. You're going to see that in a minute. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous... It's like the, dawn, like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So there it is. See how the instruction came? It does it the whole way through the book. Father, son, father, child. And then you get to 10.1, and now it's a short, punchy proverb. A wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is heaviness to his mother. Here's the consequence, kids. If you don't obey this, if you're going to resist your parents' instruction, if you're going to resist the wisdom that comes from God through them to you, if you resist it, then here's the consequence. That's how the text comes to us. And so, think about this, kids. And this is where I'm going to engage with our children a little bit. Now, I don't mean children just by the little children. I mean you teenagers as well. Think about the wisdom that's come from your parents in your life, wisdom that, that you didn't even really know. It wasn't like you got a class and you sat down and you got an exam, right? And when you had to test out and you had to like check the right boxes. Some of it was stuff that you just caught from your parents, right? And you didn't even know where you first learned it, but you know it now and you grab hold of it nice and tight. So for example, kids, if I told you that... Um, I wanted to get a bunch of plastic bags, right? And I wanted to wrap them around our faces. And I wanted to go just, let's go run and play with plastic bags run, like around our faces. What would you say to me? Kids? No? Why? Because you'll suffocate. Who told you you'll suffocate? Because one of you momos did that one time. And your parents said, no, don't put the bag over your face. You'll die, right? So they taught you this skill in life. Keep the plastic bags off of your heads, kids. And some of you did it again. Next, what if I offered you a huge, chunky piece of delicious steak? And I told you I wanted you to put it in your mouth and don't bother chewing it. Just give it a swallow. What would you say, kids? No, and why? What's that? You'll choke. Uh, who told you that? <laughs> the world is full of sinners. We know this. Okay. Okay. I assure you someone told you. Who, your parents, you know parents, right? That, that, especially when you got young kids, right? When they're like one, two, and three, you start introducing food to them. You're constantly watching them, right? You're constantly eyeballing, like you're totally fearful. 
Or are those moments, have you ever had the moment as a parent where they start choking on something, right? Is that not the most terrifying thing, right? It's so terrifying for a parent. It's a parent's, you're watching your kids like a hawk. You're like just waiting for that moment. And when it happens, like you're ready to get it out. You're ready to do what you can. But what do you always do when the child is learning to eat is you're there in front of them and you're saying, what is a parent? Chew it well. You're saying, take small bites. And sometimes you say, spit it out, right? You say it like, how many, that's my whole last week was spit it out, try again, smaller bite. Why? Because it's the wisdom from the parents. Skillful living is that this is only a certain size and God gave you teeth for a reason. You need to chew that well and you need to make sure that you swallow it so you don't die. That's what you teach your children. That's wisdom passed on to children. It's skillful living taught from the parent to the child how to eat food. Or how about kids? If I said, hey guys, before church, I met a guy outside wearing all black, real sweaty, long hair, kind of dirty, big white van, blacked out windows. He says he has candy for us, let's go, right? What would you say? No! Who taught you? Some of you are like, yeah, candy, right? No, why, but why do you not go out to the stranger's van with candy? Who taught you that? Your mom and dad. Who taught you? Don't talk to strangers. Don't trust a stranger. You don't go to someone's vehicle. You don't go inside because they entice you with goodies and money and candy. You say no because your parents are trying to keep you safe and wise in a fallen world with some very sinful and wicked people out there, out there that would love to harm you. They are out there and your parents are guarding you with wisdom saying, here's skillful living, don't go that direction, don't follow that man. Or how about if I build a fire, kids? And I said, let's build a big bonfire and let's all jump in it. What would you say? No, no why? Who taught you? Not to burn yourself on things like stoves and fires. Who taught you? Mom and dad, don't touch the stove, right? Or how the parents, don't you love it? Sometimes you're like, don't touch the stove. Stay away from that. Stay away from that. Sometimes you're like, well, let's see what happens. Because you're like, maybe you just need to touch it for a moment to realize you're going to burn yourself. Maybe you just need to get a little bit of pain for you to realize you can't do that. So parents have to manage this and say, I want you to be happy. I want you to be filled with joy. I want your life to be peaceful. I want you to be separated from all harm and people that would harm you. So your parents are saying to you, stop swallowing that whole piece of food without chewing it. Not because they're like, because I, would, I want to rob you of your joy. Right? Your parents aren't saying, don't go with the stranger who's offering you the candy because we so don't want you to have any red dye today. Well, I don't want you to have any, any fun or joy. We're saying, don't do that because to go, don't go on that path. You'll be destroyed. Don't do this because you're going to be destroyed. The reason the parents are pouring that wisdom into you is because they love you and they want the best for you and they want you to be happy and strong. They want you to experience life in this world. And so all these ways, parents, we pour into our children this wisdom is because we love our children. We care for them. Now, kids... Everything I just gave to you about the steak, about the stranger, the sweaty stranger outside with the van with the blacked out windows, everything I told you about the fire and every other example you could throw out, like don't run with scissors, right? Who taught you that? Mom and dad, right? Don't do relay races with butcher knives, like, you know, those sorts of things. Everything I just told you was what? Your parents pouring into you, this is how to live. Here's skill in living that will keep you happy, that will keep you peaceful and safe. God's word, everybody, is precisely that here in divine wisdom. It's God giving to us wisdom on here's what will keep you safe, here's what will keep you happy, here's what will keep you joyful. And of course that comes from God to us as children, but it's actually shown that it's mediated from the father and the mother to the child. And then what's the maxim? What's the punch to it? It says... A wise son makes a glad father, and a foolish son is sorrow, is heaviness to his mother. So we need to think in terms of kids, and I don't mean just small children. I'm talking to our teenagers now who love the Lord. You profess faith in Jesus. God's saying here, here's the consequences of your sin and foolishness towards your parents. 
The question you need to ask yourself is this, do you make your mom's heart heavy? Is that life for you in your home? Do you make your mom's heart sorrowful? Do you make it heavy because there is resistance and sin and defiance and a lack of discipline and honoring father and mother? Do you make your mom's heart heavy? Do you make your father glad and proud, not because of all that you can do, not because of all your amazing skills that God's gifted you with in terms of the things that you can produce, whether it's musically or athletically, but do you make your father proud because you are wise according to God's word? There's more in Proverbs on this theme, so much more, but I want you to see one final verse here. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 24. Go there. Here's the other expectation of following God's wisdom, his wisdom from above. It says this, Proverbs 23, verse 24. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And the text says to our children, and again, I mean those who belong to their parents, let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. It's the duty of a child in God's world to work towards the joy and gladness of your parents. That's what the text says. To not be something that brings sorrow to your mother. To actually make the mother who bore you glad. Now here's, here's, the, here's the key issue. Ready, children? We have to all recognize this, and all of your parents understand this in the room as well. There is a tendency in a fallen world with sinful people, which would be each and every single one of us, to resist the instruction and authority of our parents. There's a sinful tendency in all of us to reject the authority of your parents, to sin against the authority of your parents. And so what you must do, if you love the Lord and you want to be glad in God and to enjoy God, is put that sin to death. To recognize that when I sense sinful rebellion, hostility, a lack of teachability towards my parents, in order to enjoy God and bring Him glory, for His glory, I will put that sin to death. I will honor my father and my mother. I will pursue wisdom and understanding to bring glory to God. The heart of obedience must come with a desire to worship God and to enjoy Him. We will never, ever, ever want to obey God's law if they are simply external things exerting pressure onto us. You can't give people a list of good deeds and say, Here you go, do these things, you'll be happy. Because sinful people will say, that's nice, I don't care. But if you know Jesus Christ and you're forgiven and God dwells in you, you should see the law of God, recognize your natural tendency to disobey it, and put those things to death in an effort to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the key. And by the way, if you caught it, if you heard what I just said, you recognize for each and every one of us, that's in every area of life. That's not just from children to parents. That's in every area of life. How come I don't go into the harlot's home? How come I don't go to the sexually immoral man or woman? How come ultimately it's not just, you know, hopefully so that people around me think highly of me, but it's from the heart I worship and obey God. I want to glorify God. I want to enjoy God. I want to worship God. So I pursue this wisdom because of this deeply intimate relationship that I have with Him. That's the key issue. Now, verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 2. Here's what the text says. It says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, there's no question that the application of this wisdom can go in two different lanes. In terms of the first part, treasure gained by wickedness do not profit. You could talk about that economically. Yes, like in a hard school of economics with money and business and defrauding your neighbor, you could do that. But I am confident there is a much deeper form of wisdom going on here and I think it'd be a, a way to say this that we can all understand is very simply this. 
Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, can be easily said. The rewards of sin do not profit. The rewards of sin do not profit. In other words, what sin presents to you as the bonus, as the treasure, as the reward, it'll never actually profit you. It's never going to profit you. This is God's world. He made the world a certain way. You and I are in His image. He made you to live in a certain way with Him to His glory. And no matter what anybody entices you with, the rewards of sin will never profit. False gods never satisfy. And the rewards of sin will never truly profit. It may look for the moment on the surface like it will, but the text says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. The rewards of sin do not profit. Just think for a moment about how sin entices you. A sinful path entices you. You may see the people in the after parties. You may see people at the club. You may see people partying and just being sexually free and doing what they want and having many partners and using all kinds of illegal drugs and substances. What you never see is the fallout, right? You don't see that promoted at the party in the after party, right? When everyone's sharing the molly and the ecstasy or the alcohol or the pills, you never see the real fallout that I got to see in my own life personally, but also at the hospital with the person who's dead, where this life and this path took them, right? So the enticement is, look, if you take this thing, you will feel so good. You will feel so good. You will feel happy. You will take this and you will feel so much pleasure. If you take this substance, if you pursue this idol, you'll lose all your inhibitions. You'll be able to talk at parties. You'll have close relationships. You'll be able to have conversations you never thought you'd be able to have before. That's honestly how it's promoted, right? If you take this ecstasy, for example, back you know, 20 years ago, ecstasy was exploding over Arizona. That's how people would share it. They would say, you're going to feel so amazing. It's like hours of ecstasy. You'll have conversations with strangers. They'll become your best friends forever. Lie. It's all fiction. It's all fake. It never produces. They never tell you about the next day how you feel depressed and dark and lost and how those relationships weren't real. It was all fiction. It was all a facade. It was all a lie. Those pursuits will never actually profit you, whether it's drugs, whether it's sex outside of marriage. People will try to say, you know, we should be able to love who we want. Who are you to tell me what I can do with my body? If I want to have 50, if I want to have 50 sexual partners, you know, who are you to say, right? People brag today about their body counts. Like it's a, it's a fun thing to celebrate today. How, what's your body count? What's your body count? And we have a culture that just sort of brags on the fact that we should just be sexually free and be intimate however many times with as many people as we possibly want with no consequences. Sex outside of a covenant. How are we doing with STDs? How's that going for you? People talking about like herpes today on the rise and just normal and natural to have sexual contact with someone who has herpes or super gonorrhea today. We had gonorrhea, what, back in the 70s and 80s as a real problem, and now you've got super gonorrhea. And they call it super gonorrhea because why? Because almost no antibiotics that we have today, even the most potent ones, can touch it. So how are we doing? Is it really paying off? Is this, uh, is this freedom actually paying off for us? Is it actually profiting us, these treasures gained by wickedness? Or how about uh, the promise of treasure and reward in pornography. We got real quiet in here. Because it's something we all face. Amen? There is more free access today to sexually immoral images and content than ever before in history. This stuff used to be hidden. You had to go into back alleys and dark places and seedy parts of town to get access to this kind of content. And now you are bombarded with it at every moment in your devices, through media. And it's something we have to face because it's something that is now promoted as 
healthy and good and wonderful and should be celebrated that we can engage in these sorts of things. But what does it lead to? Without question, does it give you the reward that you're pursuing? No, the pornography actually leads to documentable, statistically provable, sinful compulsion, right? You pursue it and you don't actually get satisfaction. You need more and more and more and more. And someone gets into a, 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 a spiral where they start watching pornography. Now they're watching pornography for three hours a day, four hours a day, five hours a day, six hours a day. They go into a weekend where the whole weekend was pursuing pornography because the images and the pursuit doesn't actually satisfy, does it? It doesn't actually satisfy, does it? But what does it lead to? More compulsion, more chasing, more destruction of the human mind. Do you know that it's actually a fact and it's proven that the images people see in pornography get actually burned into their memories, burned into their memories. So you'll go decades and decades after viewing pornography for the last time and you'll still be able to access those images unforgettable in your mind. Even as a forgiven person, and you know that some of you guys came to Christ with the life of this behind you, you know right now that that destruction wreaked havoc that you are still dealing with to this day. Right? Did it really give you the treasure that it promised, the profit that it promised? Distorted? A distortion of beautiful sexuality? Think about this. Scripture is big, 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 big on the intimacy, the glory, and the beauty of sexuality. Man and wife. It's big. There's a lot to say about it in terms of one thing I think that evangelicals have failed in is being light and salt in the area of human sexuality and just how amazing and good it is. How, how much it is to be celebrated in the right way. To come against the lies of the world. They're like, hey, look at all this treasure you can get from our wickedness. To come against that lie to show them, no, this is real treasure. This is the real treasure. The husband-wife relationship, totally committed, enjoying one another, knowing each other, and being satisfied in one another. But we have a culture that says, no, distort it, make it ugly, spread it everywhere. And so we distort what is beautiful sexuality. Or how about the consequences of a, porno, a pornography addiction? Pursuing that treasure in terms of what it does to the physical body. How it wrecks your mind, your ability to be intimate with your spouse. And leads to actual physical problems with men. It's perversion. And it never delivers what it says it will. You can talk about ill gains in terms of fraud in business and defrauding your neighbor. It never satisfies. It looks like it offers treasure. It won't satisfy. Or how about crime, right? Don't obey the law. Defraud your neighbor. Steal from others. Abuse the community. And so if you would just get engaged in crime, you're going to make a ton of money. You're going to live a happy life. You'll be just great. I'm reminded when I thought about this of... Um, Two particular stories. One is uh, when I was 19 years old, <clears throat> I took a break from teaching karate because I was tired of making everybody else money but myself <clears throat> and working for guys. And so I said, I'm just done right now. I need to take a break. And so I decided I'm going to do something else. Uh, Candy and I were recently married, um, had a baby, and uh, I was like, I just I need to do something else. And so I decided to start doing, uh, selling insurance and investments and, you know, mutual funds and those sorts of things. And I actually did really, really well. But uh, I had a partner one day, he came back to work after going on an appointment. He's like, you're never going to believe who I just went to see. And I was like, who? And by the way, this was like 1999. He goes, you're never going to believe it. He goes, I just went to the house of Sammy the Bull Gravano. Now, for some of you guys in this room, you're like, no clue who you're talking about. But if you lived during the 90s with the mafia at its peak and New York and Gotti and all the stuff that was going on, Sammy the Bull was a very big deal. He was all over the news. He cooperated with the government. He turned on Gotti. It was a big deal. And my partner went on appointments, but the name wasn't Sammy the Bull. The name was some other name. I was like, what was it like to go sit down to give life insurance to Sammy the Bull? He didn't get approved, by the way. <clears throat> <laughs> Which I thought was funny. 
Sammy the Bull thought he was going to get life insurance. I thought that was amusing. Uh, the, insurance, uh, the insurance guy must have been like, uh, yeah, I don't think so. This is guaranteed, right? Um, so Sammy the Bull, when he left the mafia, he had a hit put out on him, a contract by the mafia to take him out because he cooperated with the government. So when my friend, my partner, went to sit with him, he comes into the house and he says, Sit in the, in the back, sitting in the backyard was Sammy the Bull. And you know what he was wearing? A bulletproof vest in his own house. How'd those treasures work out for you? How'd that life of sin work out for you to be constantly watching your back, in hiding, knowing that there are hitmen who would love to take a piece of you to get that money from the contract? He's in his own home with his own family wearing a bulletproof vest. And later, while he moved to Arizona, he started an ecstasy ring here in Arizona. And he was ultimately caught and thrown back in jail. So he spent most of his life in jail. So how did that uh, life of crime and that pursuit of that ill gain work out for someone like that? And he was at the top tier of crime families. He's the best of the best. He's at the very top. You can't really get any higher. How did it work out for him? Or I wanted to tell you about the time that I ministered to DMX. Some of y'all have no idea who I'm talking about, and some of y'all do. Um, I spent a lot of time giving the gospel to and being a minister to the old famous hip-hop artist DMX, which was really weird for me because um, in my younger days, I was listening a lot to DMX, and now he's sitting in front of me, and I'm ministering to him. And so I spent a lot of time with DMX, giving him the gospel, and he is another example of somebody who had all the riches, all the fame, all the women, everything that he could possibly want, and now he's sitting in front of me, a very broken man. And I was able to give him the gospel on a number of occasions. I spent hours with him, communicating the truth to him, and I said to him, I said to him, I said, if you don't turn to Christ away from all of this, not only will you die eternally and spend an eternity away from God, I said, but I promise you, you are going to die. This is going to kill you. The life that you're leading now, the parties, the drugs, everything, you are going to die. I promise. And some of you guys know what recently happened to him. What was it, in the last year, last two years, he overdosed and he died. Exactly as I told him. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit it's not going to turn out the way that you think. And here's the challenge, right? Let's, let's start to summarize this. The challenge is oftentimes what? Is you see people living a life of foolishness, sin, wickedness, and evil. And as a Christian, sometimes you wonder, how are they getting away with that? Right? Like, I, I think at times, I have a lot of examples, but I think at times the, the sister in Christ, Tabitha, who saved my son's life from being murdered, she saved his life, poured into the mother, his birth mom, and gave everything to make sure my son lived and wasn't going to be aborted. She has a twin sister who is a missionary full-time in India. And in India, what she is, is she's a mother to like 45 children or something like that. She's in India. She has little to no support. She sacrificed her life to care for these orphan children in India that are just thrown away like trash. She's caring for them, and, and she cares for them with these miracles that drop down from God to actually feed these children and care for these children. She gives them the gospel. She loves them in the only way that she possibly can as a mother because these kids are just orphans. And she, they call her mother, and she feeds them, gives them the gospel, disciples them, raises them up. And she lives a life of essential poverty in India, caring for other people, sacrificing, giving her life away. And it's such a hard Life and the government is, is making things difficult for her. She has to constantly be very careful. 
It's a challenging life. And it looks like from a human perspective, like you're really suffering. And this doesn't look like it's, it's giving you a lot of personal reward. I mean, I know you're laying your life down for others, but yeah, like where's the riches? Where's the gain of all that you output into others' lives? You look at someone like her and you say, this just doesn't seem like it makes any sense. If she's a loving one, she's a sacrificial one, she's the giving one, and her life is a life of um, difficulty and brokenness. And you can have people that are just sinful and wicked and do what they please. And what happens is they seem to get like whatever they want. They have riches, they have peace, they have fame. It appears so. And listen, as you deal with this, you need to deal with what God says about that scenario. Because the text says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. But sometimes, if we're honest, it kind of looks like they do. The Psalms deal with this. Go to Psalm 73. Listen to this, and we'll finish here for today. This will be a two-parter. It needs to be. Psalm 73. Sorry, Psalm 73. Listen to how the Psalms express this. It says, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut throughout the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no faults in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See that? Don't you like oh, wow. Don't you love, do you not love the honesty in the Psalms about the human experience? And that's, by the way, how the Psalms will work, is they will take you and my heart, and they, it'll be laid on the page. Like God is reading your mind and letting you bring this despair out. It's right there on the page. And then it'll turn into God's truth and God's wisdom as a response. So then it says, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to, me, seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Do you see how answer from scripture is this these treasures gained from wickedness they do not profit that you will come to an end and here's the thing that's i think uh, important to note here is the psalmist is talking about the fact that look it looks like everybody is just doing whatever they want and they're getting away with it and they're rich and they're fat and they're happy and they have no concern for you god and here i am trying to be faithful and they're over here profiting and then it turns into but that's actually not the case 
They are going to be destroyed. And a matter of fact, it's God who is opposed to them and God is promising that they're going to be destroyed. They will come to an end and you will be lifted up. You are held by God. You are loved by God. Don't be deceived by the treasures gained by wickedness. The pursuit is towards God, who is our refuge, who loves us. We rest in the shadow of his wings, and we are indwelt by his spirit. So the call to God's people is this. Turn from foolishness. Embrace wisdom. Set your eyes upon it as God's child. Set your eyes upon wisdom. Let my life and your life as God's people in Christ, forgiven, not condemned, Forever, let it be a pursuit of not just God's knowledge, knowing things, but also wisdom, the skill in actually applying these truths. May God bless us with that. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your people today, for me. You challenge us in this area of your wisdom. Heal us, our minds, our hearts. Give us, God, in this body, give us a pursuit of wisdom to bring you glory and praise. These are your words, God. We believe them, and we want to hide them in our hearts and treasure them up that we may not sin against you. Bless us that we may be light in your world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.